Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The gist is brought to you by the new podcast, Dog Smarts. Each episode features leading researchers and academics that tackle questions of language, memory, intelligence, and even love as they pertain to our dogs. Subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, June 10th, 2016. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Gawker has filed for bankruptcy and it has put itself up for sale. The publisher Ziff Davis might be a player. Gawker owes Terry Bolia, Nam Demat, Hulk Hogan, porn name Pork Pullman, over $100 million because it lost a class action suit earlier this year. Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal, funded the Hulkster, paid his legal fees, directed him to the court that won him the verdict, kept him stocked in tasteful and somber do-rags during the trial replaced reams of ripaway tank tops whose removal underscored the idea, which was widespread during the 80s, that Hulkamania was indeed running wild. But now it seems that this mercurial whim of an objectivist billionaire scorned is really what's running wild and not Hulkamania. Hulkamania, it turns out, can be easily cured with a four-week course of Cipro, a shot of penicillin, and being put in the camel clutch by the Iron Sheik. Now, I have a lot of friends who work at Gawker. I have friends whose livelihood depends on a Gawker paycheck. Four people have served as the editor of the Gawker sports site Deadspin since it was founded. I am friendly with two of them. I'm friendly with the most important person in shaping Gawker's editorial voice. And all of these people who I know and who I value think of it as a truly terrible thing that Gawker is endangered, that Gawker and the Gawker empire for all its excesses Brett Favre's penis being on the wrong side of blackmailing a closeted Condé Nast executive, waging open war on middle managers at ESPN in a fit of peak. I could go on, but all of these were part of a valuable journalistic voice. And it was a valuable voice. It also went too far. And while I don't think Gawker's misdeeds justify a payday for Hulk goddamn Hogan of $140 million, a Florida civil jury disagrees, though sometimes I think that I and a Florida civil jury would disagree on almost everything. I actually don't think Hulk Hogan deserves $140 for what he went through, but I still think that Gawker had a lot of excesses, and I think they were defined by their excesses as much as they were defined by their accomplishments. Now, you'll read lots and lots of stories about what the Gawker bankruptcy means for the future of journalism. And since these stories or opinion pieces are written by journalists, the vast majority of them are going to say, it's a sad day. Peter Thiel represents a danger to journalism. Journalism could be chilled. But will it? What happened to Gawker could happen to anyone, they argue, but I tend to think that could is the most important word in that argument, because in reality, it didn't happen to anyone. It happened to Gawker. It happened to the outlet that went up to the edge constantly and past the edge occasionally. That's not a coincidence. Other journalism outfits don't go that far. Why is it logical to conclude that we'll all be threatened by billionaire-backed libel suits? The pirate ship that was Gawker 
actively courted exactly this kind of attack. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the analogy for the rest of us is that we're all like the war journalist who tells himself, oh, I'm not taking dangerous chances, but calamity can and does still happen to that guy. Or maybe it's like the heroin user who says, oh, I know how to properly inject. I know how to use clean needles. Yeah, well, you're playing with fire. You're you're engaged in an inherently dangerous activity, and the odds are that it'll eventually catch up with you. But I don't think that that describes the state of journalism in places other than Gawker. It is not the case that it's just a matter of time until Slate or ABC News or the Washington Post gets taken down by a billionaire with a grudge. Proper news organizations don't routinely play Russian roulette and tell themselves that the safety's on. So a sad day for Gawker needn't be seen as an attack on journalism everywhere as much as it is a reminder that whatever you do, you should never put yourself in the position of having a St. Petersburg, Florida jury decide your fate. On the show today, I spiel, well, let's put it this way. If what I was doing there was zigging where everyone else zagged, or in this case, ziffing where everyone else zaffed, in the spiel, I will in fact agree with the vast majority of popular sentiment, and still, I promise I will give you a new thought to chew on regarding the Stanford rape case. But first, Muhammad Ali was buried today in Louisville. Ali was the greatest showman and the greatest or most activist celebrity of any stripe during my lifetime, and oh yeah, he was a pretty good boxer also. I talked to the nation's Dave Zirin about thinking about Ali's legacy outside the ring. The funeral and memorial for Muhammad Ali will take place in Louisville, Kentucky, where a boy named Cassius Marcellus Clay was born. He went on to become Muhammad Ali. And there in Louisville today, Bill Clinton remembered the great champion. I think he decided very young to write his own life story. He decided that not his race, nor his place, nor the expectations of others, positive, negative, or otherwise, would strip from him the power to write his own story. Bryant Gumbel was also on hand to eulogize Ali and to point out that the almost cuddly, universally beloved figure that we've come to know wasn't always thus. What does it say of a man, any man, that he can go from being viewed as one of his country's most polarizing figures to arguably his most beloved? And to do so without changing his nature or for a second compromising his principles. Well, before that happened, I spoke with Dave Zirin. Dave is the editor of the Nation's, uh, the Nation Magazine sports pages. He does the Edge of Sports podcast and the Edge of Sports blog, which is about the intersection of sports and politics. I spoke to Dave Zirin as the 23-mile funeral procession was about to take off right before noon in the East. And uh, I started by asking him, just tell me where you are and what you're seeing. You know, I'm right here on on 4th and Broadway here in Louisville, surrounded by 500,000 of my closest friends. So, you know, I'm doing okay. Let's talk about Muhammad Ali in Louisville. Complicated relationship. Very. Because there it is, his hometown, yet he famously throws, I don't know if it's an apocryphal story, maybe you do, but throws his Olympic medals into the Ohio River right there because of the racism that that town visited upon him. Yeah, and let's start with that because, 
there is now like a, a cottage industry saying that that story just isn't true. And there was a terrific column by Kevin Blackestone in the Washington Post that basically held up the idea that it isn't true under the microscope and said, let's examine where that comes from, the, the debunking that this took place. So it's not clear whether he actually threw it in the, in the river, but one thing is certainly clear. When Cassius Clay at 18 years old won that gold medal, he was amazingly proud of it. Wilma Rudolph said he followed her around like a puppy dog in the Olympic Village in Rome uh, with this medal hanging from his neck. I mean, they, he couldn't take it off. People thought it was silly and cute. And he did come back home to Louisville. He really did have to confront racism and segregated lunch counters, even with the gold medal swinging from his neck. And he didn't think enough of the medal to keep it from that point going forward. So the story has real resonance, but that's not even the least of it in terms of Ali in Louisville. Uh, he protested in Louisville. He protested. He said the people of Louisville, black people in Louisville are treated like dogs by the city. Uh, the city council of Louisville uh, voted to renounce him in the late 1960s. And yet, as early as 19, I believe, 74, one of the main thoroughfares in Louisville was named Muhammad Ali Boulevard. I mean, it's a remarkable transformation. And since that time, Louisville really has really promoted him as a favorite son. The Muhammad Ali Center is here. I think Louisville is in so many ways symbolic of the incredible journey and transformation that Muhammad Ali went through with regards to his relationship to the United States. Yes, in a way, they came, the city came to embrace him as America did and put aside the tension that it had with him or wanted to put aside the tension that it had with him. And, you know, you've reported on that tension and you've talked about not whitewashing his legacy. And I want to get to that. But one of the reasons that we've moved past it is just because of the person Muhammad Ali was. Yeah. He never veered from his conviction, and yet at the same time, he allowed us to embrace him. Yeah, I mean, because he couldn't be broken, really. And so because he couldn't be broken, he was embraced by the powers that be. And it really starts with the fact that the young generation in this country really never rejected him. Uh, young uh, black uh, civil rights workers, were absolutely enthralled with the fact that the heavyweight champion was this kind of a rebel. Young, white, anti-war activists who were often derided as, you know, not being brave and being cowards, uh, were, loved the fact that the heavyweight champion of the world, someone who could never be branded cowardly by mainstream America, was all of a sudden on their side. So the younger generation embraced Muhammad Ali, and then it was like the older generation caught up once Really, it didn't happen until it became popular opinion to oppose the Vietnam War. It became popular opinion to actually understand why some people would be frustrated with the slow pace of anti-racism in this country. And uh, as you said, and I think this is totally right, Muhammad Ali had this generous enough of spirit and heart that when people were like, okay, Muhammad, you were right on the war. We, 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 you got knocked down by Frazier. You beat Foreman. We love you. He wanted to love people back. I, th I also think that there is an aspect to, it's certainly because of his personality, but also an aspect to his sport. One man stands alone, doesn't have to deal with the idea of, you know, divisiveness in the clubhouse, uh, continues on with it. So mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the book you wrote about John Carlos and Tommy Smith, great moment in the Olympics, but that was their moment. Muhammad Ali persevered via athletic greatness, and it all added up. I mean, he was a sui generis figure. You can't say that there'll ever be another one in terms of personality, but it all added up to him 
continuing to have the platform and not to have it dictated upon him what he can say or what he couldn't say. It was this confluence of events that allowed Muhammad Ali to eventually be seen as righteous in his causes. Well, it is interesting that when we think of the most renowned political athletes of the 20th century, the explicitly political athletes, it is interesting how many of them exist in this space of individual sports like Muhammad Ali, Arthur Ashe, Billie Jean King, Martina Navratilova. That's not just a coincidence because there is this tremendous, anyone who's ever played team sports knows what this is like, where the coach is like the general, the team is like the army, and if you in any way, shape, or form stray from what is supposed to be the team focus on the goal of winning, you're not just undermining the ability to win, you're undermining your friends, your brothers or sisters in arms. And even though that there, there's so much history that says that that's a, a pure, unadulterated horse crap, I mean, Bill Russell, the great, you know, 11 championships in 13 years was a team sport athlete. With so it's, it's, Celtics, yeah. Yeah. And so, but, but that, but that mythology is, is shoved down players' throats that they have to keep it in line. So the individual sports, I really do think allow for more political space, particularly in moments like the 1960s when people really were ready to have a major shift in consciousness in this country. And I think this is where what Brian Gumble really gets right. And I, that's why I'm actually really glad he's one of the speakers at the services is that he's, he argued that Muhammad Ali pushed the entire country forward because he refused to be afraid and being that way he gave other people courage like i always likened it to to roger bannister uh when he broke the four minute mile uh before he did it people thought it could never be done but once he showed psychologically that it could be done tons of people could do it so once ali showed that you could stand up against the war loudly proudly poetically other people said i can do it too how much of the proceedings today are reflective or inflected with Islam, Ali's religion? Last night was the incredible Islamic uh, funeral that, I mean, 14,000 people were there, uh, a mix of all faiths, uh, three speakers uh, from uh, the Islamic world, and yet none of the three speakers were prominent, and yet there were all sorts of famous people in the front, from the president of Turkey uh, to Farrakhan was in the front, and yet people who we would describe very much as salt of the earth, they were the people who Ali and his family chose to be the speakers at this event. And it, even that is just so Ali, because these kinds of uh, Islamic burial services tend to be, even if it's a prominent figure, very small, very intimate family affairs. And yet Ali's wishes were open the doors, let everybody in, you know, and that's why I really think this entire week is in some respects his last act of resistance. When you consider all of the anti-Islamic bigotry coming from Trump and in the general talk radio universe, um, this is with Ali's death. He's saying, open up the doors and, and, you know, let's celebrate my life and let's celebrate peace. How do you, how do you personally, Dave Zirin, given your beliefs, um, deal with the aspect of Muhammad Ali's beliefs and opinions that you personally disagree with? I mean, you mentioned Louis Farrakhan there. Let's say at least a complicated figure. So how do you think yeah. about that? I mean, honestly, the way I view it is that Muhammad Ali is like a cake. And if you like the cake, then you have to just accept the fact that there's sugar in there and maybe that's not very good for you or artificial sweetener and that's not very good for you. But you can't pretend it's not there. 
And you've seen that in a lot of the retrospectives. I believe Bob Costas, he, he praised Muhammad Ali's resistance to war, but then described his conversion to the nation of Islam as quote unquote misguided. I think that's the wrong way to talk about it because if he doesn't go through that journey through the nation of Islam, then he doesn't resist war. So it, it exists altogether. So even if there are individual parts to it that I personally disagree with, I got to say, I stand with the more like Julian Bond, uh, the late Julian Bond, the civil rights leader who said, he said the act of joining the nation was not something many of us would have agreed with, but he kind of told all the right people to go to hell for us. And that made us really happy. When you speak with athletes, um, because I guess if <laughs> there are some journalists where if an athlete's going to come out as gay, you talk to the guys from The Advocate. And if an athlete's going to come <laughs> out as political, you talk to Dave Zirin. What do they say stop them? Does their consciousness awake or do they in general tell you I never felt comfortable talking about it? You know, what liberates them in your conversations with athletes who eventually take a political stance? The, the number one reason absolutely is the question of financial sacrifice and fear of payback. You know, the average NFL career is three and a half years. Most people know that. But in the other sports, it's actually not much longer. And so there's this very, very hard won belief that I'm at this position. I only have a couple of years to make most of the money I'll ever make in my entire life. And I have a ton of people depending on me. And I can't necessarily risk that because what would I be risking it for? Yeah. But the players who do who do speak out, many of them do so because they see themselves as part of a tradition. And so they talk about Muhammad Ali. They talk about Billie Jean King. And they say, like, look, th this tradition is, is a marathon and it's a it's a process. And as an athlete, I have this platform. There is a tradition of speaking out from this platform. And I feel like I need to do it. What about when athletes speak out for conservative causes, like when Tim Thomas refuses to go to the White House to meet Barack Obama, even though his Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. Do you put that on the same continuum as political activism? Or do you think it's uh, maybe a separate category? Yeah, I think it, it's definitely a separate category because, you know, we do have political realities in this country. There are left-wing and right-wing movements and these kinds of stances either aid one or the other. But that being said, I've always tried to make it a habit of at least offering support for the right to speak out, even if what athletes say are things that I strongly disagree with, because I think far more toxic than an athlete saying something right wing is athletes who try to say, no, you know, one corporation under God with liberty and justice for none. And let's not say anything about anything for fear of what it'll do, you know, to our to our brand capacity. I think like that idea that we're going to be brands before we're people as athletes is just far more problematic and far more pernicious, not just for athletes, but people who look to athletes as role models, in other words, how they affect the culture, than an athlete who might say, you know, go Trump. If Muhammad Ali were a 20-year-old today, what do you think his sport would be? What do you think his path would be? What do you think his cause would be? All right, uh, his sport definitely would not be boxing, and I think we both realize that, that, that this is right. a, a dying sport in so many respects, particularly for the young. Um, but at the same time, Muhammad Ali, growing up, did have access to other sports and rejected them. Like he, a classmate described him as a boxing nerd. So let me rethink that and say, I think he would box anyway. Uh, I think he would so outclass his opponents, it would be ridiculous. Um, I think he would have less stature because the sport of boxing has so much less stature. 
unless he was a mixed martial artist. But I think his yeah. cause would be absolutely clear. Uh, his cause would have everything to do with questioning the global war on terror. It would have everything to do with attempting to create a bridge between the West and the Islamic world. It would have everything to do with standing up for ra against racism and bigotry. It would have everything to do with trying to say that I, the Trumps of the world and the jihadists of the world are in many respects in the same camp. They're people who want to see us as uh, in, as, divi as divided and as constantly at each other's throats. And I think he'd be making every effort to end that dynamic. Dave Zirin is a sports editor for The Nation. He has a blog called Edge of Sports. He has a podcast called Edge of Sports. Uh, take in everything you can from the final remembrance of Muhammad Ali there in Louisville. And thanks for joining us today, Dave. No, no, no. It's my privilege. Thank you so much. There are great ponderables of the universe. Is there a God? Where did I come from? Where will I go when I die? But primary on this list is, of course, the age-old question, does my dog understand what I'm saying? Other questions, can my dog sense when I'm sad? Can nutrition have a positive impact on my dog's cognitive health? Now, if you've asked yourself these very questions, I'm going to say you're a dog owner, but I'm also going to say that you need to tune into the podcast, Dog Smarts. Hosted by leading author and professor of cognitive neuroscience at Duke University, Dr. Brian Hare, each episode of Dog Smarts brings together the brightest researchers and academics to discuss what's really going on in your dog's brain. Download and subscribe to Dog Smarts on iTunes now. And now the spiel irrelevance culture. I was reading a paper by Stephen Levitt. Yeah, you know, the Freakonomics guy. This was his seminal paper where he talked about the causes for the drop of crime in the 1990s. And he has a table right up front there, media explanations for the decline in homicide rates in the 1990s. So he said, well, what were people then saying was the reason crime was declining? Innovative policing strategies, increased reliance on prisons, changes in crack, other drug markets, aging of the population, tougher gun control laws, strong economy, increased number of police. In this paper, Levitt introduced another explanation, legalized abortion. But you know what I couldn't find in all his data? Because crime went down, homicide rate went down tremendously, and I could not find the explanation victims stop putting themselves in the position to be murdered. I just didn't find that. Where was that? The decline of willingness to be murdered culture. And yet, let's go to Mona Charon of the National Review, what the Stanford rape case reveals. Yes, tell me what it reveals, Mona. Subhead, hookup culture is the foundation of our campus sexual assault problem. I would argue that it's hookup without consent, which is to say rape. Rape culture, as much as I don't like that phrase, but raping is the basis for our campus sexual assault problem. In a way, I mean, you can't say she's wrong. If we all castrated ourselves, rape would stop or it would definitely drop. Just as if there was no concept of private property, like in some pre-Columbian cultures, the robbery rate would no doubt go down. I don't even think Mona Charon believes what she's writing. I don't know. Maybe she does. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Although, how would that work? Which way is giving her the benefit? But it just seems like something you say 
like you've been saying this for years and years, hookup culture, hookup culture. And then this big thing happens tangentially related, you think, in your mind to hookup culture. So you've got to make that point again. But has she read the facts of this case, this particular case? Does she not think that the rapist was a rapist? Does she just think that of those who have bought into hookup culture, he was in the top percentile in terms of his dedication to hooking up? There are people who actually think this way, right? Men are going to have sex. They're going to have their sex. The only thing to stop the men from having their sex are 19 to 23-year-old women forcing them into dates and courtship and series of petticoats and hand slaps at a gazebo at dusk. In Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, they believe a version of this, that women are tempting and out of the charter, they will inevitably provoke men to go crazy. But here, a few years past the 19th century, there is talk of another culture that causes men to go crazy, get out of control, become animals. Here are the words of Brock Turner, the rapist, quote, I've been shattered by the party culture and risk-taking behavior that I briefly experienced in my four months at school. His dad wrote, in hindsight, it's clear that Brock was desperately trying to fit in at Stanford and fell into the culture of alcohol consumption and partying. And Brock further writes, I know I can impact and change people's attitudes towards the culture surrounding binge drinking and sexual promiscuity. I made a mistake. I drank too much and my decisions hurt someone, but I never meant to intentionally hurt victim's name redacted. My poor decision making and excessive drinking hurt someone that night. I wish I could take it all back. And then Brock Turner's friend, Leslie Rasmussen, wrote a letter of support. And she wrote, where do we draw the line and stop worrying about being politically correct every second of the day? It is because these universities market themselves as the biggest party schools in the country. They encourage drinking. I think it's disgusting. I'm so sick of hearing that these young men are monsters when really you're throwing barely 20-somethings into these camp-like university environments supporting partying, and then your mind is blown when things get out of hand. I do think anyone who looks at it would think that binge drinking's a problem. I also think, obviously, it's a convenient excuse that Turner and the people close to Turner are grasping for to avoid the term rape to avoid maybe even in their own minds the idea that he raped his rape victim. And I've been thinking about this. How much does drunkenness excuse? Not much. I do think there are circumstances of fogginess or misunderstandings or missignals. Something like this probably goes on sometime. It's why affirmative consent laws have been adopted in some states. But I also think this explanation of drunkenness, especially in this case, is not actually how being extremely drunk works. I'm not even talking about the idea of drunk as a get-out-of-jail-free or in only six months card. I think it mistakes what drunkenness does to a person. I do not think that being drunk makes a person violate their own moral code. I think it lowers inhibitions. I think it puts bad ideas into one's head. But bad ideas are things you wouldn't do for fear of getting caught, things you wouldn't do for because of social norms or how other people would judge you. I think it does make you do things you'd regret. I think it facilitates, being really drunk facilitates deeds that seem out of character. But I don't think that being drunk could make you violate your own moral code. We say, oh, I'd never do that if I were sober. That's a little different. I'm talking about direct opposition to your moral code. I say this because I have been drunk. I went to college. There was drinking going on. Maybe you've been drunk too. And when you got really drunk, did you ever abuse an animal? Did you ever kick a dog? If you did, 
that probably means that you don't think abusing an animal is that bad. I never did because I really love dogs. I never punched a good friend of mine for whom I had truly warm feelings. Yeah, you might get into a fight or a confrontation with someone you don't know or someone you don't like or someone you just met. But if you really love someone, you're not going to punch them when you're drunk. When you're drunk, you might eat some pizza that you know you shouldn't eat. But if you find oatmeal gross, you're not going to eat oatmeal when you're drunk. You might say some nasty things and things you regret. But if you use racial slurs when you're drunk, it means that you don't truly find racial slurs actually morally abhorrent. I don't think that you violate your moral code when drunk. I think you give in to your feelings, but I don't think that you act the opposite of what your real feelings are. So what this adds up to is that I think this is hopeful. I think it indicates that we could change behavior of future generations through the work of teaching our sons that sexual assault is sexual assault, that it is a morally repugnant action, and we'll eventually get to the point that our sons won't engage in this morally repugnant action any more than they would engage in kicking puppies even when their defenses are down. The petition to recall the judge who sentenced Brock Turner to six months has reached over a million signatures. There are approximately 2 million 11-year-old boys in the United States. I say, let's be frank about the realities of hookup culture, and let's teach them the immorality of rape. This way, even though they will probably one day be wading into and likely occasionally succumbing to these cultures, partying, hookup, they will be outraged by the idea that they would ever use these cultures as a reason or an excuse to engage in an act they think reprehensible, the act of rape. That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson strains and fights, but will not acquiesce when faced with a challenge of completing a newspaper word games. It is her rumble with the jumble. When Steve Lichtai received a legal-sized envelope, he referred to the formal written offer to be executive producer of Slate Podcasts contained within as the Thriller in Manila. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is debuting a new offering from Malcolm Gladwell. Revisionist History goes live next week. There is only one figure now on the landscape who can top that But to will that figure into podcasting, Andy Bowers will have to rope up hope. The gist, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, but what about it an aphid like a hoverfly? Shout out to all pollinators, even ones outside recognized meter and rhyme scheme. Oomperu adepperu dooperu, and thanks for listening.